Hey guys, and welcome to Hacked Off. My name is Holly Gress. This time, I would like to talk to you about a checklist for security. This is uh, something I've been working on for a little while now, talking about effectively just where do we start with security? Now, depending on who you talk to, they'll give you an initial point. It's like, oh, you should start with penetration testing, or you should start with vulnerability scanning. All I want to do in this podcast is talk to you about a few things that you've probably already considered, but maybe add a little bit of a twist to it. So taking a, a fresh look at some really basic fundamental security steps. So I've got a little checklist in front of me, and I just wanted to give you some ideas of, of things that you can uh, can check out with your own security. So the first thing that I wrote down in terms of where should we start making sure that our systems are secure is software updates. Now, a lot of organizations will, will take software updates and they'll, they'll put a lot of effort into making sure that all of their operating systems update, all of their client-side software updates and those kinds of things. But I think one thing that a lot of companies that I work with certainly are less prepared for is what if a really important update comes out? So a lot of companies have considered software updates and they've come up with some plan of, of testing and implementation. And they'll say something like, oh, what does Cyber Essentials say? All software updates should be installed within 14 days. And that's good as a, a kind of mandatory minimum, you know, make sure all software updates get up, uh, get installed. But what if something really important comes out? What about things like the WannaCry vulnerability or the, the old go-to used to be Heartbleed? When Heartbleed came out all of those years ago, there was publicly available exploit code within only a few hours. And if your patching policy is 14 days, how do you deal with those kinds of things? So that's something to look internally about, is how can you speed up the process for those one or two vulnerabilities that are kind of, you know, headline-grabbing issues? So patch everything immediately, but have a plan in place for those expedited issues. Another thing, a normal fundamental for security, change your default passwords. Now, most organizations have considered this and they've gone through their um, builds, their gold images, they've made sure there's no uh, fixed passwords. They've gone through their firewalls and made sure that the interface is protected and things like that. But what about embedded systems? What about IoT? You know, if you're using IoT systems, did they have a default credential that maybe you haven't considered just because it isn't a traditional computing system? So change your default passwords is a, a thing, but maybe consider just the, the wider side of things. I know that uh, Mirai was a really big thing a couple of years ago now, but Mirai, if you're not familiar with it, was at the time one of the biggest botnets in terms of bandwidth. And what it was hitting was effectively default accounts, vendor installed, fixed credentials, those kinds of things. So change default passwords applies to more than just, you know, workstations, laptops, firewalls, those kinds of things. Another thing to consider on that is having reused passwords. So yeah, there's the consideration for staff, staff user awareness training so that they don't reuse passwords between home and work and those kinds of things. But what about your laptops, your, your desktops, the local administrator accounts, it still surprises me at how few organizations have considered Microsoft Laps. If you're not familiar with Laps, that's the local administrator password solution. It's a, a solution that came out from Microsoft for managing local administrative passwords. It's a really good system. It's free and it can massively increase the security. It's one of those considerations that people who've never really had a pen testing influence in their security testing maybe have missed. 
But if you consider where an attacker is able to compromise a single machine and extract the local administrative credentials from that machine, if they're predictable or reused across all of the workstations, then that horizontal propagation, that network-wide propagation, becomes really trivial. One of the best ways of fixing that is with something like the local administrative password solution. Another thing that comes up a lot that uh, people talk about but I rarely see well implemented is network segmentation. So network segmentation, what I'm talking about here is having physical security perimeters within the, the network. So separating things like your wireless network from your infrastructure, so the, the server side of things, separating user machines from servers, those kinds of things, and also separating based on geographic region. I know a lot of organizations that got hit by NotPetya, that malware attack, that came out shortly after WannaCry, um, that hit a lot of organizations to a high degree simply because network segmentation wasn't as rigorous as it otherwise could have been. Now, a lot of organizations will have probably implemented a firewall between servers and workstations and those kinds of things, but have maybe not had segmentation testing. So this is effectively getting a penetration tester to come in instead of taking a look at one environment, instead of you know plugging in where the staff workstations are and trying to compromise workstations. It's plugging in in one environment and trying to gain access to a different environment. So can you connect to the wireless network and compromise corporate laptops? Can you connect to the wireless environment and compromise servers? Those kinds of things. So network segmentation is really key in not only slowing an attacker down, making that propagation way more difficult, but it also affords you an ability to filter traffic and to monitor traffic. Are you seeing suspicious traffic between two networks that you wouldn't expect? Those kinds of things. So it's a, a thing that a lot of people talk about, but I rarely see implemented to a high degree. Manage out of band. So this is one of the things that I, I definitely see on penetration tests come up constantly, where organizations struggle with their management traffic. Hopefully nobody's managing these days with Telnet and everyone's managing with SSH or an encrypted alternative like that. But one of the best things that you can do is just separating management traffic from user traffic. So similar to how we talked about network segmentation a second ago, but but physically separating data planes. So if a malicious staff member or an attacker who's able to compromise a staff machine through something like phishing can't physically see the management traffic, that makes intercepting it far harder. So yes, encryption's one option there, but separating it through VLANs or something else is a, another thing that you really should consider. I have a little note here that just says, if you don't need it, disable it. And what we're talking about here is reducing the attack surface. Now, I see people doing this all the time in terms of uh, disabling or removing network services. So taking a look at their servers, going through the list of services and, and selectively removing ones that aren't required. And that's a good thing to do. But another thing to look at is just the network protocols that are in use. So a lot of Windows environments still use things like NetBIOS and Link Local Multicast Name Resolution. Hopefully everyone's familiar with NetBIOS. It's been around for so many years now that I think everyone knows what that is and the fact that we for the most part, don't require it. A lot of people don't realize that it's still enabled by default. NetBIOS name service is enabled on most Windows environments that I look at. A link local multicast name resolution, if you're not familiar with that, is just a multicast equivalent for NetBIOS. If none of those things make sense to you, it's a way that computers can look up host names. So if you try to connect to a server to map a file share or something like that, and you type a host name, if that host name isn't available within the domain name service, the DNS server, 
by default, Windows machines generally will call out to the local network, and by the local network, I mean the broadcast and multicast network, and ask if any other machine in the environment knows where that machine is. This is a prime point where an attacker who's physically located on the internal network, be it a malicious staff member or a compromised device, might be able to perform a man-in-the-middle attack to steal credentials for other services. This is pretty much my go-to vulnerability for the first time an organization has an internal infrastructure pen test. Plug into the network, look for link local multicast and resolution traffic. If you see it, effectively impersonate all of the servers on the network and you're able to capture SMB traffic, that's file transfers and capture credentials there. HTTP traffic, which is plain text web services and web application traffic, capture credentials there. It's a really, really big hit in terms of high impact from the attacker's point of view. But for the most part, like I said, if you don't need it, disable it. In a lot of organizations that I work with, when we exploit that vulnerability, the outcome is just, hey, you've never heard of this thing. You're clearly not using it. Just disable it. But because it's enabled by default, a lot of people haven't considered that. If you're curious where to look, if that's a thing that you uh, you want more information on, for link local multicast name resolution, there's just a group policy. You can go into group policy objects and just disable that protocol if you're not using it, which in my experience, most companies aren't. Another thing which we're seeing more and more now, but just a a thing to consider is pre-shared keys for wireless is not enough. So what I mean by pre-shared keys is where you connect to a wireless network and you supply a password. It's the most convenient way to connect to a wireless network from a user's point of view. If you want staff to be able to connect to networks, you just install a password on their device and then they can connect. Management becomes very simple. The problem there is things like um, compromised devices. So if the device is um, compromised or stolen, And then also things like um, staff members leaving. If a staff member leaves the organization, do you want to have to change the password on the wireless network every time a staff member leaves? The administrative overhead is often a lot higher. And there is an alternative, but we still see that a lot of companies haven't implemented that yet. And that's using something like 802.1x. So that's effectively client-side authentication or, or Active Directory authentication for the wireless network. It's using an alternative authentication method. It's definitely something that you should consider. The initial deployment's a little bit more complex, but not having to deal with staff members leaving and those kinds of things, it, it becomes a lot easier. And it's far better from a security point of view. You can also use 802.1x on physical network connections, so what we generally refer to as network access control. So instead of a staff member or a malicious user from being able to come into the organization and plug a cable into the wall and get network access, network access control can restrict that to only valid users, only expected devices, those kinds of things. Network access control is a, a really rigorous protection. And in fact, I previously mentioned it on this podcast. And when I mentioned it was when we were talking about physical access social engineering. So it's talking about people breaking into buildings. If you haven't heard that uh, podcast yet, it's definitely one I'd recommend checking out because social engineering is just uh, the kind of risk that can impact all kinds of organizations. And, and generally, when we look at social engineering, we're thinking of phishing attacks and those kinds of things. But with physical access, it might be a technical attack. It might be someone targeting servers and those kinds of things, but they just want physical access to plug a device in, or maybe they coerce a staff member into plugging a device in. And network access control severely limits their ability to do that, but it's still not so widely implemented. 
Now, I mentioned password reuse earlier in terms of uh, local administrative password solution for protecting uh, devices on the network. Another thing to consider there, though, is um, credential stuffing. So where staff members have reused passwords between uh, their home stuff, the home social media and work, those kinds of things, that can be a, a difficult thing for companies to deal with. Some companies go down the route of preventing credential stuffing. That's the art of compromising one company, taking a list of usernames or passwords and trying that elsewhere. A lot of companies try and protect against that with things like two-factor authentication. And two-factor authentication is a rigorous protection against weak passwords in many contexts. But another thing to do might be to consider password managers. So instead of just training staff members through security awareness training, hey, you don't reuse passwords, you shouldn't do that, it's bad. If you allow them to use password managers, or better yet, include password managers within your gold image, within the, the staff uh, image that you deploy for staff workstations, it'll encourage users to use password managers. Maybe you'll think that you know your users aren't tech savvy enough to, to consider using password managers. But I've actually found in my experience working with organizations in password management deployment for normal staff members. A lot of staff members prefer it, not because of the security benefit, but just because of the convenience of it, because password managers can make life easier and not having to remember passwords. So you're effectively encouraging them to not reuse passwords just by solving that problem for them. Restrict user input. Now, normally when I'm talking about restricting user input, I'll be talking about it in the context of web applications. And for anyone who's read the OWASP Top 10, I've mentioned that on a few podcasts now, you'll take a look down and you say, yeah, the way to fix a lot of those vulnerabilities is by restricting user input. But you can also talk about it in the context of desktops, laptops, their workstation builds. If you're deploying uh, workstations to users and they can access things like the command line, access things like the run menu, it might be convenient to the IT department when they're checking on devices, if there's been a, a technical glitch or something like that. But staff members can, can use those features uh, maliciously as well. It can make uh, an attacker's um, progress through a network a lot easier. If you imagine the kind of red teaming approach to compromising an organization that's breaking into an organization from the perimeter, one of the first things that you might try and do is compromise the user's device through a, a social engineering phishing attack. So you'll send them some uh, malicious email attachment or something like that. And if you manage to compromise that staff member's device, you could load a load of hacking tools on there. You could put meterpreter on there or something like that. But if you're just doing that initial network reconnaissance, it's a lot easier if you can just open a command line and use the built-in Windows commands to do that. So you should restrict user input, yes, in the context of web applications, but also just in terms of your work sessions. Locking down users' access to those features is a very good thing. Or if you don't think that would work for your business, if you think there'd be too much kickback from effectively uh, restricting user access, it's definitely a thing that you should be monitoring. You should have metrics in place or systems in place so that you can say, which of our users have accessed PowerShell recently? And which of our users have accessed uh, common administrative tools? So just silly things like IP config to take a look at what the local config is. Who am I? The command that tells you who you're currently logged in as. The kinds of tools that an attacker might initially run when they compromise a environment or compromise a system through a phishing attack to find out where they are, to find out more information about a system. So restricting or in the very least monitoring those kinds of living on the land tools is definitely a good thing that you should do. And then, of course, trust but verify. So you should test your systems. I've talked previously about penetration testing on this podcast, everything from web application testing to red teaming to uh, hardware hacking fairly recently. But another thing that you should consider is not only just penetration testing, 
but testing your organization's response, so incident response testing. This could be something like a, a complex engagement where you get uh, a secure engineer to come in and perform penetration testing activities and see if the IT department can detect that. Or it might be something quite simple like performing a tabletop exercise or what's very often called wargaming. So the idea here being that you sit down some key members of the organization. It doesn't have to be everyone because I realize that people are busy, but a board representative, a PR representative, a member of the IT team. And you just walk through the process of what if a certain type of incident took place and how would the organization deal with that? And I find that a lot of organizations have an incident response plan or maybe a business continuity plan, but they very rarely tested that in a range of scenarios. And the scenarios can get to be honest, quite interesting and quite out there. So yeah, you've got what happens if uh, a machine is compromised, what happens if we have a malware infection, but just working out, actually physically working through the process of dealing with that response is definitely an interesting thing. I think one of the things you might be surprised on if you've never done incident response wargaming before is um, at what point you actually activate the plan. So there's a big difference for an organization between one machine's been infected and 100 machines have been infected. But you generally find indicators of compromise early on and have to walk through that process. So trust but verify. Security testing, including penetration testing, vulnerability scanning, yes, but also consider incident response testing. In terms of incident response, just a, an, an additional note there is to, to consider incident response and business continuity planning. Some organizations have uh, one or the other, but not necessarily both. I was working with an organization recently and they had a, a business continuity plan and they thought, hey, we're, we're prepared for all possible incidents. And I opened this plan and the first line of the plan says to be activated when a significant security concern that may disrupt business continuity takes place. And there's a lot of things that can happen before a significant event takes place that you can prepare for. So if you've got a, a major disruption plan in place, just consider some of the smaller things, you know, minor data breaches, small numbers of machines being infected, those kinds of things. And maybe you wouldn't immediately want to call the board in and call the crisis management team and things like that, but you should have some standardized process for gathering the required information and just triaging that incident to work out actually what level of response is, uh, is important here. So that's it. Just some things to consider. Hopefully you don't take this as just a checklist for security of things you've covered before, but can see how I've tried to draw out different perspectives on some of the standard fundamental security concepts. So hey, take a look at the planning that you've, you've done. Take a look at your incident response plan, your patch management plan, and just think of, is there any way that you can just improve this a little bit? Well, I hope you found this helpful, but I have a question for you guys. What do you think I missed? Of course, when we come up with these checklists, we're always going to miss something. So what do you think is the, the critical aspect of security preparation that I didn't consider in this podcast? Throw us a message on LinkedIn or, or on social media. We're on Twitter as well. And uh, yeah, we'll continue the discussion.